So great to see our children uh, ministering to us today. And, and the holiday season is, is always a special time of, of, of celebration and of joy. I remember as a, a, a high schooler, there were some foreign exchange students that came to our high school and, and a couple from Korea and a couple from Germany. And I really enjoyed talking with them about their experiences that they had here in America and the things that they learned. And one of the things that they said they enjoyed the most was being around Christians during the holidays. They weren't themselves believers. And to be able to see the joy that, that Christians have thinking about the birth of Jesus Christ and how important it is to them and how it draws their families together was a great joy for them. And we spoke about some of the traditions that they had in their countries because it seems that even in countries where Christmas holiday is not celebrated. This time of year, it seems that everybody's celebrating something, and, and each culture's got its, its own things that it enjoys to celebrate. However, Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, is a holiday that should be celebrated worldwide, and, and not just for cultural reasons, but for theological reasons. Christmas marks a, a hope that God is giving us of salvation, and the people of the world need to hear about this hope. The first thing I want us to focus on this morning as we get into a time of reflection on God's Word is the fact that the God of Scripture is not a regional God and Jesus is not a regional Savior. Now, what I mean by that is that the birth of Jesus was of particular interest to God's people, the Israelites, but even though the rest of the world was not expecting the arrival of this Jewish Messiah, the birth of Jesus would have a profound impact on the spiritual condition of the rest of the world as well. When you study the ancient cultures of the world, you begin to notice how each of those ancient cultures, no matter where they lived or how they came to be, no matter how great they were or how small, no matter what climate they dealt with, no matter what culture you're talking about, each of these ancient peoples, these civilizations, eventually developed beliefs. They began to tell stories that attempted to answer the age-old questions of life. Questions like, where did mankind come from? Why is mankind here on this planet? Is there something greater than us that is directing things, that is pushing forward some kind of plan or, or will? How do we know what is right and what is wrong? Who is the ultimate judge of these things? Faced with their own human limits, these different cultures began to develop myths, fantastic tales that sought to formulate answers to these riddles that puzzled people around the world. And often these stories didn't reach far beyond the boundaries of that particular culture and their own experiences. The gods that they invented were, in fact, regional gods. And so you have what you, you could experience if you were to study the ancient Egyptians. The Egyptians created a, a pantheon of gods that were tied closely to their geographical region, mostly tied to the Nile River because the Nile to the Egyptians was life. It was their source of water in an arid and dry place. And so if there was a bad season of harvest and the rains did not come, they would interpret that as the anger of their gods being unhappy with their behavior and thus punishing them by not sending the waters that they needed. And each of their pantheon of gods was connected to some local feature of the land or some struggle that they would go through as that particular people and culture. Another example would be the Greek and later the Roman gods who were a reflection of warring and territorial nature of the cultures that invented them. Their gods were seen as mighty conquerors. 
Because that is what those people aspired to be themselves. And many of them were closely associated with a certain city or a particular landmark that represented that God's personality. So you have Athena, who is the, 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 the goddess of Athens, this particular city that is represented by philosophy and, and great learning. And you have this great Mount Olympus that represents Zeus, the god of power. And then Poseidon, of course, is the god of the sea and patron of those sailors who spent so much time on the waters of the sea. So these ancient cultures often developed these regional gods that reflected on their particular experiences in life. But the God of the Bible, from the very beginning, did not limit his dominion to a particular region of the earth. In the very first verses of God's scripture, God's described as bringing not only the whole world, but even the whole universe into being. He does this with his very words, he does it as an act of his creative will, not as a reordering of the pieces that already existed. He didn't build the universe. He spoke it into existence out of nothing. And so God, God brought all things into being out of nothing. Everything, everything owes its existence to the mighty God. Later in Genesis, as we read of God's displeasure with the sin that began to infect his creation, we see how God does not punish just one particular locale and make an example of them, but instead he brings a worldwide flood upon the face of the whole earth, showing that his dominion spreads from east to west. There is nowhere in this world where God's presence and power is not on display. There's no end to his authority. There's no end to his jurisdiction. God is not a regional God. Throughout his dealings with Israel, God makes bold claims of authority, not over his own chosen people, but over all the nations of the world. In the book of Jonah, the Gentile nation of Nineveh, a, a nation that does not worship or respect Yahweh, a, a nation that does not have his law or keep it, he, he exercises his authority over these people nonetheless. God sends them a prophet from Israel and insists that they repent of their sin or experience his judgment. Those people shockingly do repent and are spared the wrath of God. And when the nation of Israel persists in its own disobedience, God raises up other foreign nations and empowers them to play the spoiler on God's behalf. In order to stunt Israel's disobedience and rebellion, he does this clearly with the non-believing Assyrians who would defeat the northern kingdom in Israel. And later he does it through the empire of Babylon, a secular nation that did not honor him. And yet he raised up leaders in Babylon to defeat his own people so that they might learn to trust in him and to depend on him more. Babylon's second king is recorded as saying in Daniel 4, verses 34 through 35, at the end of days... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done 
This is the testimony of one who was not even a follower of Yahweh, and yet he recognized the great power that God had over all the nations, not just his chosen people, but every people group in the world, because all had been created by his power. So the God of Scripture, the God who we worship here today, did not consider himself a regional God, one God among many. He described himself as Lord of all. And likewise, the Messiah that God sent to overcome sin and to be a Savior to us was born to be the one and only Savior that the whole world could know. Now, there is no denying that Jesus' entrance into the world was a fulfillment of directly Jewish prophecy. And it would directly answer questions that pertained to their individual nation. If we look in Luke chapter 2, verse 27, a passage of scripture that is synonymous with the Christmas story, then we will see the focus that, that, that is clearly Jewish in these early scriptures that speak of Jesus' arrival. Verse 27 of Luke 2 says, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, you see, Jesus was born under the law, and as they went to go to this, this temple, we spoke about this last week, this man Simeon, who had expected to see God's chosen Messiah before the end of his life, recognizes him as this chosen one, as the fulfillment of that, that, that promise that was made to that particular people. Jesus was born under the law of Moses, and he lived a Jewish life. Look at what Galatians 4.4 has to say about it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was a thoroughly Jewish man. He was not ashamed of that fact. He worshiped at the temple. He followed the law of Moses. He honored and fulfilled the prophecy that was revealed in the Old Testament that God had given to his people Israel. Two of the New Testament Gospels go to great lengths, in fact, to record the genealogies of Jesus' earthly parents to prove, legally, his definitive connection to the bloodline of David and Abraham and erase any doubt that this coming of Jesus was in line with the covenant that God had made with Abraham, who was the father of the nation of Israel. Matthew spoke of, of Abraham and his descendants through 42 generations to Joseph the man who would serve as God's father on earth. And Luke is even more ambitious, tracing Jesus' roots from Adam all the way up to his mother, Mary. Speaking of Mary, the message that the angel Gabriel brings to the young virgin, as recorded in the last part of Luke chapter 1, uh, that we saw acted out on the stage here by our children, gives much attention to Jesus as the Savior, particularly to God's people Israel. Look at Luke 1.32 that's on the screen. It says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. So Jesus is, is clearly a Savior for the Jewish people in accordance to the fulfillment of promises that God had made to the Israelites. However, we need to notice this fact. In the very next chapter of Luke, and I'd encourage you to turn there right now. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus did not come to bring hope and Israel, to Israel alone. 
he makes it very clear that his ambitions were greater than that. So if you've got your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2, I want to read for us verses 8 through 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The birth of the Savior of Israel was good news, not just to Israel, but to all the people of the world. Jesus' arrival was not some local event that the Gentiles could afford to ignore. In fact, in the record of Jesus' birth, we see distinct examples of non-Jewish people who concern themselves with the arrival of this child, don't we? In Matthew chapter 2, we read that wise men came from the east. And now these were not Jewish men. These were men who had studied various different uh, tomes of, of wisdom, and they had come across the Israelite scriptures and had read them, and through discernment they had recognized that there were prophecies of a king to come. These wise men studied all sorts of astronomy and philosophy, yet they were very, very concerned with these messianic prophecies that had been laid forth in the Old Testament scripture. Tradition holds that they may have even been kings of the lands that they traveled from, and yet they concerned themselves with the birth of this little baby, this Jewish child, having read that his arrival would signify a great work that God planned to do on earth. Later on in that chapter of Matthew, we read that Herod, not a Jewish ruler, mind you, but a Roman governor, played a part in the Christmas story as well. This non-Jewish man was incredibly concerned with the prospects of this newborn baby growing to possibly one day fulfill the Jewish prophecies and reign as a king over these people. Herod perceived Jesus as a threat to his own sovereign power, and rightfully so, because Jesus would grow to be a king, but not in the, the, the mindset or the, the framework of, of the earth that we live in today. He would be the king of kings and the Lord over all lords. So the Savior was not only a Jewish Savior. He was Savior to the whole world, to all who had put their faith in Him. Think about that fact, especially if you've ever been tempted to see Jesus as simply one among many religious figures in the world. Think about that fact if you think Jesus came just to present another option, to give you another choice from all the different options that that already existed. Perhaps one that would resonate with those who are more loving or, or less judgmental or more socially sensitive. Jesus did not come to save only his Jewish countrymen. And he did not come to earth hoping to appeal to those who liked his particular brand of spirituality. He had no desires of being a regional savior. Jesus did not concede that some people might find their enlightenment in another guru or a different religious figure or God, and that would be okay for them. Instead, Jesus says there's a serious problem in the world, a problem called sin. 
And he alone claimed to be the only way of solving that problem. Remember the words of John 14, 6, where he says that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus saw himself as the gateway to the Lord God and to a right relationship with him. And anyone who wanted to know the one true God who created all and reigns over all would need to go through him. The arrival of Jesus was good news to the whole world because the Jews were not the only ones who had broken the law of God. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going we're to pull apart a, a section of Scripture that helps us to understand why the whole world, not just the Israelite world, needed a Savior. Chapter 1 of Romans, starting in verse 18, says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. No, this is not just the unrighteousness of Israel. This is the unrighteousness of man, right? Of all mankind. Verse 19 goes on to say, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The Apostle Paul makes several important statements in these five sentences that we just read. First of all, Paul asserts here that God is wrathful. That means that God is angry about the unrighteousness of man. And he doesn't hide the fact that he's wrathful here. The peace on earth that Jesus came to bring is only possible because Jesus presents a solution to the sin that satisfies the holy wrath of God who hates evil and will not let evil go unpunished. And we cannot afford to think of evil as some faceless force, can we? This scripture plainly says that it is the unrighteousness of man that makes God angry. To see his creation, which was designed to reflect his glory and his beauty and his truth, to see them rebelling against him in an open ignorance of his laws, angers God. And it should be punished rightfully by God when we sin against Him. This passage clearly describes the object of God's holy wrath as the unrighteousness of men. It is our sin that God hates, not just sin itself. So the second thing we see here when we realize that God is wrathful about the unrighteousness of man is we see that man suppresses the truth of God's displeasure with sin. That means that we push it away. Even though God has revealed it to us plainly, Mankind has a basic knowledge of evil. And we also understand that evil should be punished, don't we? Especially when we see it in other people. When we see somebody else sinning, when we see somebody else breaking a holy command or doing something immoral, we think, yeah, that should be punished. But we ignore our gut feeling that wickedness is wrong so that we can do it, 
so that we can commit sins, so that we can bend God's laws and break His commands, and we don't have to face the terrifying consequences of offending a God who holds our existence in the palms of His hands. So we suppress the truth. We, we fool ourselves into believing that God is not here, even though He has clearly shown us through His creation that He is here. God has revealed this to man since the beginning of time. Verse 20 tells us that the creation testifies of this fact, that the things that God has made will bear witness to the fact that God is real, that there is a good and a bad that that He defines for us and inspects us to live according to. Our awareness of sin is not just a recent thing either. We cannot think that before the Ten Commandments, people got off scot-free for their sins because, well, they didn't have the law. They didn't know how to live. You think the people in the time of Noah had the law of Moses? No. But the creation made it clear to them that they should not be in sin. They should not be in open rebellion against this God that had made them. So the flood denies that the law doesn't have any power until Moses gives us the Ten Commandments. The creation has always spoken to the fact that there is a God of order who has established right from wrong. And though we might struggle to understand it completely on our own, we know that we're guilty when we sin. Finally, we see also here in this passage in Romans 1 that sinners have no excuse. We all know better. All that God has shown us has made it clear to us, whether we face the facts or not, that God is king over all that He has made, not just over those who choose to be religious and live in a way that pays attention to Him. We are all guilty of treason against God by way of our sin. This is not a regional problem. It is universal to mankind. Every human being is affected by it. Sin does not discriminate. A few verses later in chapter 2, Paul writes again about this and saying, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You see what that means there? Whether you're a Jew and you were brought up under the law of Moses, or whether you're a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, and you're brought up with very little knowledge of the law, the wages of our sin is still the same. It is death and separation from the Lord God who made us. So where are the glad tidings of joy this holiday season, right, that we sing about at Christmas? Where is the glad tidings of joy? They are right here in the vulnerable little boy wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger in the town of Bethlehem. The light of the world whose birth we celebrate on Christmas would grow to be a man. He would not stay a precious, vulnerable little child, but he would grow to speak the things of God to live them out with his life, to minister to the lost sheep of Israel and the lost sheep outside of Israel. He would live an extraordinary holy life and then he would voluntarily satisfy the wrath of God by giving his life on the cross as a payment for our sin. That sacrifice was intended to save more than just ethnic Israel. It was made to save anyone who would trust in the work of the one that God sent. Back in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, before we got into that long section that we just talked about that describes the universal impact that sin makes on the earth, Paul softens the blow a little bit with verses 16 and 17. It's on the screen. I want to read it for you. 
says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Gospel means good news. It represents this message we're speaking about this morning. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and to the, also to the Greek. When he says Greek, it's just not meaning Greek people, but anyone who was not a Jew who lived in the Greek area. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, the Jews were a chosen and special people unto God, used in a powerful way to finish, or to, to shine His truth in the world and to reveal His plan to earth. But by being near to God does not require that you trace your personal lineage back to Abraham. You don't have to be a Jew for this to matter to you today. This makes tremendous sense when we consider that God, when He chose Israel to be His special people, didn't choose them because they were particularly more valuable than anybody else on the earth. He didn't choose the Jews to be His chosen people because they could speak better than others or because they were righteous and holy in a way that the other people of the earth were not. Look at Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. This is on the screen for you as well. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set His love on you and chosen you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, God did not look amongst the people of the world and say, who is the most religious? Who's trying the hardest to please me? I'm going to make them my chosen people. But instead, his favor shined on Abraham and he made a promise to Abraham that Abraham didn't even deserve. He simply chose to make Abraham and his descendants the nation through which his light would shine to all the nations of the world. God selected Israel not because they were worthy or mighty, but simply because he decided to love them. And there are others that he has decided to love as well. John chapter 10. In this passage of scripture, Jesus is describing himself to his disciples and to all who would listen to him preach as the good shepherd, the one who tends to his sheep well. And he says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who are these other sheep that Jesus is speaking of? They are not of this fold, meaning they are not of ethnic Israel, but they will soon experience what it means to belong in every way to the good shepherd. He is calling them to be a part of his flock. He is making that possible by his son, Jesus Christ, who also describes himself as the gateway to the sheep pen. If you're going to be a part of God's people, you must go through him. And so these ones that he is drawing to himself, they will hear the good news. They will trust in faith in the one that God sent and he will make them his. He will bring them to, in to dwell with those who have responded to him in faith, just as he did to Nineveh, just as he did to Ruth and Rahab, these Gentile believers that are scattered through the Old Testament and yet believe. And many other Gentiles throughout the New Testament as well, we see, come to Christ in faith and are received by him. 
Perhaps he was speaking of you when he said those words, the lost sheep I will also bring into my fold. God is intent on saving people for his glory. And he wants to do it from all the nations of the world. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 35 says this. This is Peter's proclamation as he sees the good work of God as the the mission began to explode in Judea. He says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter saw that God's love extended beyond the borders of ethnic Israel. And what is acceptable to, to God? Those who do what is right are those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. They are those who recognize that on their own power, they cannot do what is right. They cannot please the Lord God in a saving way. Because Jesus is not a regional savior, his church is set upon a global task. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Though God chose to bring the message of salvation through the nation of Israel, there is room for redemption for anyone from any tribe who will by faith receive the grace of Jesus Christ and rest their hope in Him alone. There's a song about this, you know, that's being sung in heaven even now as I speak. The apostles, or sorry, the apostle John was blessed beyond measure to hear this very song sung with his own ears when God saw fit to reveal it to him in a miraculous way. John, having been brought into the throne room of heaven, witnessed a picture of heavenly worship that celebrates the one Savior who alone can redeem the world. And I want to read this for you from Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, the Lamb being Jesus Christ, the one true sacrifice, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. May the gospel message of Jesus Christ save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, even this Christmas. That's truly good news, friend, not just for the Jews, but for all mankind. Would you bow your heads with me as we conclude with a word of prayer?